Hello, it's Arthur here. A couple of weeks back, we hosted one of our live Zoom specials for our much-appreciated Patreon supporters. That one was with my old friend and story journalist, John Sweeney, live from Ukraine, just as he was leaving the front line. Here's a short excerpt from that recording. But if you'd like to take part in more like this in future, just search Doomsday Watch Patreon and sign up for as little as £3 per month. And while I'm talking about that, I'm not going to let you go without mentioning my new book, which comes out on the 21st of July. There's a special offer for listeners where you can get a discount on a signed copy. To access that, go to this website, canburypress.com forward slash products forward slash doomsday. That's canburypress, C-A-N-B-U-R-Y press dot com forward slash products forward slash doomsday for a special discounted signed edition of my new book, How Britain Broke the World. Now, over to the inimitable John Sweeney. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome, everybody. Fantastic to see so many people signed on already. And particularly fantastic to see John alive, wearing his lucky orange hat. Um, he's got a big beer with him. And he's uh, he tells us he's in a brothel somewhere in the west of Ukraine. So, John, welcome. Tell us what's going on. Sorry, I'm, I'm at the very start of this. I'm about to spit beer over and everywhere. Uh, <laughs> your patrons... This is what they expect. Indeed. You would be um we'd be very disappointed if you were sober as a judge. Um so John, you've you've been crossing Ukraine uh using its famous railway system, which of course has played such an important role in this war in terms of keeping Ukraine supplied, but also in terms of moving people in and out of Kyiv. We've all seen the pictures of different global leaders catching those trains. But you've actually been been right at the front line in Kharkiv, haven't you? Yeah. So the Ukrainians call it Kharkiv, um, although it's pronounced Kharkiv. Um, it, it looks like Kharkiv, but it's pronounced Kharkiv locally. Yeah. So what um, uh, various plans changed. And um, I ended up uh, traveling with Max, who is the guy who runs... Uh, the Buena Vista uh, bar, uh, which one of these days I'm going to write a thriller about all of this. Mm. I'm going to turn the the um, the, uh, the Buena Vista into the Pina Colada. But Max is a tremendous character. Uh, his friend Vlad, um, who's uh, a physics teacher at a university in Kiev, and uh, two friends of mine who are journalists from Slovakia. And uh, we, we go on a big, long road trip. We get to um, Kharkiv, we brought some scotch, we drink the scotch, and about one o'clock in the morning, there's some big bangs, and we're all, well, certainly uh, myself and the Slovakians are experienced uh, in uh, in war. Uh, and, and we both look at each other and go, well, that was big, and it was incoming. And um, the next morning, we work out that... Um, Maybe the reports, this is evidenced by um, audio-visual of the city council, there were 40 um, ballistic missile attacks on, um, on Kharkiv. 
so that people understand. Essentially, there's two, there are big guns and there's missiles. Yeah. Big guns and artillery. And weirdly, it's the artillery that you should be afraid of. An artillery can smash the city and is really, really dangerous. The cruise missiles, which um, Vladimir Putin's killing machine has been firing this way recently, are terrifying and they can kill people as they kill people in the in the shopping mall in Kremlinchuk. But the odds of that happening to you are very much in your favour. Yeah. But if you're in a city within uh, basically the range of the uh, of the Russian artillery is 15 miles, and they never put big guns on the very front line lest the Ukrainian infantry come and nick it. So it's always five miles back, maybe more. So essentially, there is a kind of perimeter zone which is about 20 miles wide where you feel pretty safe most of the time. And Kharkiv is not safe because some of it is within 12 miles of Russian artillery. Um, however, most of the time, they're hitting the northeast of it, a, a, a town or a suburb of um, Kharkiv called um, Soltivka. To give you a flavour of this, the Russian guns, if, if Kharkiv is London, the Russian guns can hit Hackney, but not Westminster. Right. So we're in Westminster, but nevertheless, we hear stuff. Uh, a missile went, came in and um, it hit a car park round blocks of flats. Mercifully, nobody was killed. But secondly, they put an enormous hole in a road. And there's a lovely lady, um, a daughter of a guy, an elderly guy who'd worked in the Soviet rocket industry. Uh, during the Soviet Union, and he said, this is a present for my former colleagues. <laughs> a very beautiful and ironic way. But um, this, what happened was the big rocket hit the water main, and I said to the nice lady, aren't you grateful that Vladimir Putin has built you an enormous goldfish pond? <laughs> and and she, she, she took the joke... But she took the joke, and she, we were laughing before, and she took the joke, and then she said, it's a shutka, yes, Mishnaya. It's a joke, but not a funny one. Yeah. That's, um, so then we wanted to go to the front line, and uh, we got on, and the Ukrainian army has become much more efficient, and, and essentially they're not that keen on um, freewheeling um, journalists popping up. They want some organisation behind it. You don't have it, you don't get it. And so we were blocked. And then I realised that there is uh, somebody who was following me on, on Twitter who I got in touch with. Her name is um, Sarah Ashton Curillo. I, I think her is Sarah LV. LV stands for Las Vegas. Right. And she's, she's trans. Uh, anyway, I, I, I phoned her up. And I said, can't go to the front line. I said, oh, I'll give you a tour. And she was as good as gold, um, dangerously so. <laughs> like, and anyway, she she's a kind of effectively the deputy mayor of a of a tiny, not a tiny, a 20,000, the village of some 20,000 people, which is about 10 miles from the Russian frontier, which means that they can hit it all the time. Yeah. And 50 people in this village have been killed. And she took us to the site of a battle where a Russian tank and two Russian APCs had been uh, knocked out by the Ukrainian army. And we were um, 
you can't tell because the um, the front line changes a lot, but we were roughly between five and 15 kilometers, roughly between three and seven, 10 miles from the Russian army. Wow. We were so close, Arthur, I took my hat off. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it was like, you can tell, uh, I'll put it back on because it's lucky. But, and then she took us back to uh, the village and we saw there was a kind of, there's a local hospital, which also, to be fair, doubles up as, as a mass clinic and the Russians have smashed that to pieces. And through the rubble, I took some, I, I took some photographs and there was a kid on the swing. So, you know, you can see the rubble, there's a hole in the rubble, and then behind there's a kid on a swing. There's an old man with a stick. And the problem is these people, so many of them, it's not like they're stupid, it's just they don't have enough money to go to get out. To and they don't have enough family to get out. So they're stuck there. Yeah. And, and you, see, you see the war more closely. You've got a book coming out. Tell everybody about this book and how it relates to the story of this war. Um, yes, it's called Killer in the Kremlin. And as you can tell from the title, it's broadly supportive of Vladimir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, what it does, uh, it's not broadly supportive. Uh, it sets out the evidence. Joe Biden was once asked, uh, do you think um, Putin's a killer? And um, Biden goes, yes, I do. I think... Joe Biden's wrong about that. I think Vladimir Putin is a serial killer. And um, BuzzFeed did a really good story where they set out like there's 14 mystery deaths Mm. of people in Britain where you've got to look at them and you think, well, actually, they're enemies to critics of the Kremlin or they're getting in the Kremlin's way. And then they have these mystery deaths. And then these slightly rubbish coroners go ho-hum, not quite sure, um, open verdict, whatever. Yeah, And actually, what hasn't happened is there has never been a proper and thorough investigation in a timely fashion to any of these killings. And that, by the way, includes both the Litvinenko poisoning and the, the uh, Skripal poisoning. Yep. What's happened is that governments, Labour and Tory, um, have looked away uh, and, and not that this is wrong and we're going to have a real proper investigation. No, they, so one of the it, great th- one of the great frustrations is yeah. that that has never happened in a timely fashion. Yeah. What I do in my book is look at the, um, it starts with a, the opening seven and a half thousand words is my first person account of what it feels like to be inside Kiev when the Russian army is at the gates. And then there's this moment when I hear from the, um, a taxi driver from Brovery that the Russian soldiers are starving. And I think that night I went back to the Buena Vista and I started dancing on the table because <laughs> I, I got it that there was a problem. There's um, video of that online if anyone needs to see yes. John's dancing <laughs> skills. That's important. Um, By the way, like that. <laughs> but it, it's, it's fun to engage with English irony all over again. Um, but also there's this weird sense that uh, this is the most important war of of my lifetime yeah that this is a battle 
about everything we believe in, about liberal democracy. With I'm a I'm a capital L and a capital D liberal Democrat, but it's also about liberal democracy, small case. Yes, it's 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 about standing up, and and I think the beautiful thing that Ukraine has taught us is that democracy doesn't must be defended and free speech does not come free. You have to pay for it. And I think these lessons have been forgotten. Now, eventually, the, um, the, the British and now the Europeans, I think it was great that Schultz and Macron came to Kiev and they saw, they went to Irpin and they saw the scale of the destruction of the yep. Russian killing machine, and they got it. You see it, you get it. You go there and you get it. And then, and then, um, and Biden has got it as well. Biden screwed up over Afghanistan, no question. Mm. But over this, there's something in him. There's some weird kind of moment where Popeye, suddenly Popeye has found his spinach. Yeah. And, and he's wolfing tins of it. And and now uh, the HIMARS have turned up, and they're a game changer because yeah. they're punching, punching way, way, way. So there's something beautiful, which might be about to happen, which is that the Russian army is about to feel it seriously under pressure, and because it's not their war, because the rationale for the war. Is, is, is a dark fairy story. It's nonsensical. The idea that Ukraine is... I mean, I have been as close as, damn it, to the Russian front line with the trans from Las Vegas. I mean, how non-Nazi is that? You know, um, dear, dear. Anyway, never mind. I believe that with the right amount of heavy metal and it's turning up with the Ukrainian fighting spirit, that the Russian army is in trouble. And if that happens, then Vladimir Putin is in trouble too. Yeah. Serious trouble. So um, we're going to go to questions in about sort of 10 minutes from now. So um, I guess the, you know, you're, you're talking, John, as it happens on the day of the NATO summit, uh, Turkey backed down on being difficult. So Sweden and Finland are, are, right on the pathway to joining NATO. So one impact of Vladimir Putin's terrible error is to get two of Britain's physically largest and wealthiest countries, two, two, of, two of Europe's physically largest and wealthiest countries to join NATO, countries that have been um, you know, neutral for decades or in Sweden's case for hundreds of years. So that wasn't very clever. Um, you're talking about the HIMARS and, you, and you've got uh, different countries uh, surging in these weapons. But there is still a game of chicken that's being played here. Uh, Vladimir Putin knows that come the winter, people in Europe, <clears throat> people are going to be in desperate straits. They won't be able to afford energy prices. Uh, it's an open question whether or not Europe will still be reliant on Russian gas. You know, we're still paying the Russian billions for their energy even now. And, um, and Putin is is probably playing his last card of what is an increasingly weak hand. But it is not a bad card, which is the thought that in a hard European winter, with super high inflation, energy prices spiralling, that some people, some of the European leaders, some of the governments are going to start to get a bit flaky. What's your sense of that, of where we're going to be in the second half and the last quarter of this year? 
There's a, there's a second dimension to that nightmare, um, which is the hunger wars. Yes. So now, for example, if you're a Ukrainian farmer and you live in the East and you go out in your tractor, there's the possibility that you, your tractor will go over a landmine and get blown up. But remember that Ukraine is part of the, it's the breadbasket of Europe. It yep. provides an awful lot of grain. So there are two big issues. There is, will Europe shiver? Will um, the Middle East and Africa starve? Yeah. And will we appease Putin because we don't want to shiver and we don't want Africa and the Middle East to starve? Yeah. I think the answer to that is simple, and it is um, my dad said, uh, who's long dead, but he said that there was a moment uh, in Liverpool when um, they sent Neville Chamberlain or Neville Chamberlain went to see Hitler. And at the time, the, the, the great British boxer was a guy called Tommy Farr, who was... Mm. And the joke in Liverpool was they shouldn't have sent Neville Chamberlain, they should have sent Tommy Farr. Mm. So I, I think there is a fundamental problem with Vladimir Putin if we let him off. Having said that, the good thing is at least we now realise what Putin is, what the Kremlin is, what the Russian killing machine is, and I think there's no excuse. The idea that we appease Putin because of the way he can threaten us and our, our comfortable lives appalls me. All we can do is fight him, and then we can hope and pray that there will be a new Russia, another Russia. I think we're going to go to questions. Let's go to Rasik Mystery, who, who is on screen. So he's going to join us um, live. Hey, greetings, John. How are you doing? Hey, great. Rasik and I were at university together in uh, 1943 or whenever it was. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, John, it's nice to catch up with you. And, uh, and Arthur, thank you for putting this podcast together and, and all your reporting. Um, yeah, I, I posted a question regarding... You know, as you've mentioned, the logistics and the morale of the Russian troops is not exactly great. So, how are they going to deal with this upcoming winter? Well, I'm uh, so we're all waiting for the big Ukrainian counteroffensive. The generals in charge are acutely conscious that if they they do not want to lose their people unnecessarily, so I think it's been good policy of them to wait for this, um, uh, this new kit to arrive. Now, remember, the, the, the big logistical problem for the Ukrainians is that they're, they've been used to having Soviet um, kit and essentially um, um, a simple thing in, in terms of shells is the Soviet uh, shell size is 152 millimetres and the NATO uh, size shells are 155 millimetres. So NATO is better, but the Ukrainian army runs on that system. And now suddenly they're running out of uh, the ability to manufacture, to make up. So there's a shortfall. What's happening is they're switching systems inside the middle of the war. Logistically, they're getting some lovely guns, big guns, long range. But the instructions are in French. And in English, English is okay. But I, I've been, uh, Vlad's regiment 
they have English lessons where they're learning English simply to um, to read the instructions on the big guns. By the way, I was the first proper English speaker that they'd met. So these poor, <laughs> these poor soldiers are suddenly confronted with me. But they were also reading instructions now in French, in Spanish, in Australia. That is English, obviously. Uh, that's a joke. Uh, but um, so there's a lot of a lot of stuff they're having to do. But they're smart people. So one of my observations, Raz, is that when you're with the Ukrainians, it feels like this is a war from the future, whereas the Russian army is fighting a, a war from the past with heavy metal, with propaganda. And the Ukrainians have got Twitter and tractor videos and drones and thermal imagery and all of that. So in the long run, I'm optimistic. Now, Zelensky talks about um, it's going to be over by Christmas because I'm English. I don't like that phrase. I know what it means. and I'm wary of it. I, my view is that Putin's going to be trouble on April Fool's Day next year, um, which is its own thing. But I, I, I think sooner rather than later, the Russian army will fold. Well, John, I think it's time now for your uh, traditional sign-off, um, which uh, we, we, we're, those of us who follow your diary will be familiar, but perhaps you could share it for those who are, who are not yet uh, familiar with it. I have a simple message to Vladimir Putin. Do fuck off. <laughs> We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. You can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.